Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touched by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lovano. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And... To always remember, you are not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Stephen Andreski. Dr. Andreski has been treating suicidal patients and suicide loss survivors for over 45 years. He believes awareness usually precedes progress. The best thing loved ones can do for those with suicidal thoughts is to offer hope and connection so they do not feel so isolated. We all need to be kinder and show more compassion to each other. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now, let's hear from Dr. Andreski and Nicole. All right. I am here today with Dr. Stephen Andreski a psychiatrist who's worked with people on all sides of the suicide spectrum for many, many years. Thank you, Doc, for joining me today to share a medical perspective on this tough topic. You're welcome. Um, I thought maybe we could start with a little bit of your background. Um, From what I (laughs) have been able to ascertain, you've been interacting with patients um, and or families uh, on all sides of suicide for many years. How long have you been working in this field? About 45 years. Wow. That is almost as old as I am. <laughs> it's a long time. There you go. So when you've been doing this for so long, um, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes in you know, it just in general, in how people are identified and treated with suicide. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, very much so. Uh, the, the big change has been that there's, it's much more well-known, it's much more publicized. Uh, it's not that there's a lot that we've learned new about suicide but, um, or suicide risk assessment, but um, people know about it more. It kind of parallels um, increased knowledge of mental health issues in general. Okay. So, you know, and as a medical professional, I'm assuming, you know, your, your practice, you treat patients with all sorts of different mental health issues, right? I do, but I began as an emergency service psychiatrist uh, I was the medical director of the crisis intervention unit. So early in my career, I subspecialized in suicide uh, assessment and treatment. Okay. So that, you know, and it's really important, I think, to know that there are doctors out there that do specialize because I think when people realize they need to find help or their supporters are trying to find them help. They're not sure where to go. That, that is a problem. And uh, it's a problem also, in particular, in the medical field. A lot of psychiatrists, younger ones, uh, don't spend a lot of time with patients. 
So often the people that are actually spending time talking to people are psychologists or social workers, which might be perfectly good. It's, um, it's really people skills that count, not so much formal education. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And I think the more you have been around patients, um, the more accustomed you're going to be to see things like, you know, the warning signs or some of the red flags that will immediately, you'll know immediately that you need to treat them in a specific way, right? Yes, if your eyes and ears are open. Ah, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? Well, um, most people that commit suicide commit it because they feel alone in some way. All people that commit suicide commit suicide because they feel that they're suffering and that they're in a hopeless state. Um, But on top of that, and even the nature of suffering is that it tends to be alienating and isolating. Uh, And unless a person, another person is willing to be there with a person who's suffering, which involves suffering yourself because there's an empathic connection that would develop, then um, we may not have our uh, eyes and ears fully open. In medicine, sometimes it's necessary to be a little bit callous in order to not bleed from every wound that every patient has. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, you, in, in a sense, you need to protect yourself a little bit as well. Yeah, there has to be the right balance of that. Most people su- uh, suggest that um, you shouldn't treat, for instance, more than two or maybe three people that are actively suicidal at a given time, because to do a good job, it would just take too much out of a person. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that as well. If we, can we go back to your early career and how and why you gravitated to patients who were suicidal? Like what, what happened or was there a specific case where you were like, this is, this area needs more attention? Well, that's exactly what happened when I was training, there was no um, doctor in charge of the uh, psychiatric emergency services. So I filled that gap just because it was there. Um, Right away, I started thinking about what were the most serious things that I might be confronted with on an emergency basis. And uh, suicide or homicide issues stuck out because those are the only immediately fatal things that are in psychiatry. Um, So I studied those, and right away I realized that um, there was relatively not a lot about suicide risk assessment. Um, I was able to read everything that was available in the English language or in translation in about four months, which is, in the field of medicine, that's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that's like nothing. I mean, honestly, I did spend a lot of time reading, but by, you know, at the end of four months, when I was reading the bibliography, it would be filled with things that I've already read. So I realized I've completed the work. Oh my gosh. And this was like 30, 40 years ago. It was, yeah, 40 years ago. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I've been researching suicide and there's a lot, like I couldn't possibly read it all, but I still feel like there's not enough. So I feel like we're still playing catch up. But you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is to understand if we have as a culture made any strides in this arena. And you're the perfect person to talk to, because as you just said, you were on the front lines, like when this topic was just starting to surface as something worthy of, you know, research and investigation. Yeah, I, I, it was known to be an important topic because some of the things I read clearly indicated that, but um, the amount of time and effort and money that um, were devoted to it was lacking and it's really, it's still lacking now, although there's uh, much more of a cultural movement towards uh, understanding these things. 
Um, interestingly, and this is often the case in mental health um, issues, um, it's the veterans uh, movement that has really spearheaded this. Yes, um, I, I definitely feel that. And I see it out there in the media. I mean, I think they have uh, a specific number of veterans that, you know, die by suicide daily. And it's, it's like 20 or something. And there's a movement around it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. And, you know, a lot of it is a, probably an effect, a sub effect of the fact that for a long time, military services and of all things, the railroad were the people that kept statistics on everything in this country. So the Veterans uh, Administration is good at keeping statistics on all sorts of diseases. Um, thus, they have very good statistics on uh, suicide well, uh, and on virtually every medical disorder. Could you share some statistics if you know them, just so we can understand the gravity of what we're talking about here with suicide rates? I'm not good on statistics, um, partly by choice because it's an when when you're treating an individual, statistics somewhat fly out the window, except for general trends. Uh, what you said about the number of uh, veterans committing suicide daily is correct. Um, but I don't know the total number of veterans committing suicide. And the, the stats that I know I boiled down into just general risk things, such as um, the increased risk of men committing suicide, of young men committing suicide. Um, and a lone young man is just by statistical basis, much more risky to kill himself than, a, than an alone young woman, for instance. Do you, why do you think that is? Probably because women are generally better communicators. Maybe it's evolutionary. Men were, in a sense, uh, violently superior. So women had to develop um, ways of communicating that wasn't based on swinging a heavier club. Yeah, I, I could... I agree. Um, and, and possibly to tag on to that, and this is just me um, making an assumption, is that women seem to create more connection, community and connection. And men often, their connection is through their women and their women's community. This is my experience. And so no, that's experience. true. And, yeah. um, you know, even in, in terms of medical things, men seek treatment for medical disorders much less. Um, there's kind of a prejudice for doctors to put more weight on a man's medical complaint than a woman's. But really, that's not a prejudice against women. It's a realization of the fact that um, men usually don't complain. And, you know, as a bad thing, it's not something to be proud of. But men have been taught to be proud of it. I certainly was taught that, you know, silently suffering is noble. Yeah. And that is just something we have to break. Um, it's hard because I, I agree, like men don't want to go to the doctor for an annual checkup for women. It's sort of ingrained. We go in for an annual checkup. If there's a mental health issue or you're feeling depressed or, you know, some of the things that might say, Hey, let's go talk to someone and get this worked out. My uh, women, and this is me again, just conjecturing seem way more open to the idea of going to see a mental health professional than most of the men I know. They like to try to work it out in other ways. It's true. Women are probably about twice as likely to seek care for mental health purposes. Uh, in my own practice, I have slightly more women, but my practice is not really representative. So I was surprised the highest, higher percentage of men that I have. Um, I think it's because I see a lot of other people's treatment failures. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, you know, let's talk about suicide. Let's, let's talk a little bit about more specifics. I mean, maybe we just open up with from your perspective, why do people do it? 
Uh, well, uh, alluding to my earlier comments, um, people do it almost exclusively if they feel that they're suffering and that they're suffering in a hopeless situation. Um, now, there is this concept of rational suicide, and that covers people that might be suffering, and they might be right that their situation is hopeless. If they're in a terminal illness, that it, it might make sense to commit suicide. I'm not, I'm not uh, addressing any religious or spiritual concerns here, just as a logical, rational thing. Um, but people who are suffering from mental illnesses, they may believe their hope in a hopeless situation and falsely believe it um, and commit suicide based on that. Um, depression is by far the number one cause of not rational suicides. And uh, depression, I like to refer to as uh, the great liar. Um, the person thinks they understand what's going on, but their understanding has been hijacked by their depression. So they are understanding through a depressed worldview. And that includes that their suffering will never end. Uh, even if they start to feel better, which is actually a time when people might tend to commit suicide, they look back and think it's just going to happen again, that there's no hope. Um, any signs that look like there's no hope, they'll give those greater weight than signs that say hopeful things. And that combination of suffering and hopelessness are the major contributors to suicide. The other one, and it probably relates to suffering, is a sense of aloneness. Suffering does have an isolating effect. And um, if a person perceives that they're alone, uh, they'll suffer more and they'll probably be more hopeless. So knowing that somebody you know could be going through this, what are warning signs that we can look for? Signs of depression are the probably the most clear-cut signs. And those would be uh, people who are uh, not behaving the way that they used to behave, um, especially if they're withdrawing from the world. They're doing less activities in general. They're socializing less. They're doing less fun things or even if they're present, they're not smiling like the rest of the gang. Uh, those would be things that an outsider might say. Um, the isolation, social and personal isolation, um, may be an effect of their depression or may be a, almost a final sign that they're about to commit suicide. Because uh, many people are thinking of others when they um, just make the uh, decision to kill themselves and they purposely withdraw from others so as not to, so to speak, bring them down with them. Um, and so that's usually a bad sign. You know, I've heard uh, oftentimes people say suicide is a selfish act. How do you feel when you hear that? Selfish is a loaded term. Um, suicide is often a self-concerned act. So the person given their understanding at the time, which again is usually hijacked by depression. So they're not understanding things accurately. Um, they may be taking what they really think is the best step for themselves. Associated with that is a kind of altruism, which can also exist. People will kill themselves or even kill others um, because they believe that it's better for others, better for their loved ones, for their family. Uh, depressed people think that they're dragging down the people around them and that people would be better off without them. Wrongly, because suicide usually leaves a very destructive, hurtful uh, legacy. But um, people uh, are not necessarily doing it because they're mostly thinking of themselves. They may be doing it to spare their family to spare their children, their parents. Yeah, they they feel that it's a very selfless act. The person yeah. that's committing suicide may. Yes. Uh, they may also think they're suffering so much and there's no hope. And especially if they feel they're alone, 
they may do it for that purpose, which, you know, I would say has a, a layer of self-concern, not selfishness in the usual pejorative use of the word, but appropriate self-concern. What's inappropriate is they're not thinking clearly because they're depressed. You know, when somebody is in such a state of hopelessness, how do you get them to come see a mental health professional? Because I can imagine in their minds, they're like, well, I'm hopeless. No one's going to be able to help me. Why should I even go do that? It's very difficult. And not all people who are suicidal can be helped, even if they're seeing a mental health professional. I don't have a 100% success rate. No, no mental health professional that works with suicidal people does. Um, so, but what you can do to try is um, you can talk directly to the person. You can not just say, but also act. You know, your actions have to be um, harmonious and sync with your words. Otherwise you wouldn't be trustworthy. Uh, and you can show that person that they matter to you, that you are connected to them, essentially that they're not alone. Um, then if you can actually convince the person to see a mental health professional um, comes at another risky time, which is that if a person goes to see a mental health professional and they don't feel some hope, that may be a ace that they held up their sleeve. And once that's gone, it actually might increase their risk. So, you know, at every turn, there's a risk. Um, but the best we can do as individuals is uh, share our attention, share our concern. Um, if a person that knows me is going to commit suicide, they're going to have to deny in some way to themselves or their depression is going to have to lie to them that they're alone, that I'm not there. And um, a lot of people won't deny that. A lot of people will try extra hard if they feel that they're important to someone, if they feel that they matter to someone. For instance, a lot of fairly miserable parents will soldier on because of their children. And that may be their salvation too. Yes. And I hear that all the time. Um, can we talk a little bit about attempts? Because I've, sure. I've read some stories about suicide attempt survivors who, you know, tried and it, they didn't die. And they later said, I knew the minute I tried, I didn't actually want to die. But then I've also read stories about people who tried many times until they were successful. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, what happens if somebody has made an attempt is like, how can you treat it? Like, what can we do to help eliminate the chance of another attempt? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, most people who do successfully, if you want to call it success, commit suicide, have attempted suicide at least once before. Um, the stats are that women attempt suicide three times more than men. Um, and men complete suicide two times more than women. Um, so by the time people come to the professional's attention, often they come because they've made an attempt. That's what brings them. Um, talking with people who have attempted suicide shows us that for most people, the impulse to actually go all the way through with it, not thinking about it, et cetera, but to actually do it is relatively brief. A matter of minutes, maybe tops hours. So um, what we can do at any given juncture to uh, interfere with the person's suicide attempt may change things for that person for quite a long time. Um, there's many, many people that um, do what should be a lethal thing, somehow survive it, and later on describe having second thoughts, for instance, in a high jump, having second thoughts as they left the ledge, so to speak, um, having second thoughts after they took the big overdose and started to pass out and realize, oh, my gosh, I might be dead. 
Um, there's the other side too, as, as you uh, described, which is that people that um, don't die then wishing that they had completed it. But uh, that's in the minority as compared to people that um, uh, are glad they lived, especially if they then find themselves in a helpful situation. One of the dilemmas uh, doctors have is um, if you assess that a person is at risk and hospitalize them, even against their will, um, will that um, guarantee almost their suicide as soon as they get out? And the fact is, it doesn't. Um, sometimes people, more often than not, people are glad for the help. Not 100%. Nothing's 100% in suicide, probably, or in medicine in general. But um, more often than not, interfering at any juncture where you can save the person's life will, uh, will help that person. I'm really hearing the importance of connection with other human beings like purpose and connection as being so important to move someone away from that helpless alone feeling. Probably as, as the other human beings, if we are the other ones, that's probably the most important thing we can do uh, in treatment. That's the most important thing that happens. There's the treatment of whatever the medical disorder is. And sometimes that can be done with, a pill with surgery, it depends what the condition is that causes the essentially depression that increases the suicide risk. But the willingness of a person to engage in that, um, the fact that often it's not an easily treatable thing, uh, it's a, a person's whole life circumstances that they could be depressed about, that demands a, a real connection to be made between that, the therapist and the patient um, or the, that person and other people in their lives. And uh, that's not something that can be faked. Uh, that's not something that can be sort of cookbooked. It's a, it's a real authentic connection. Can we talk about the people left behind, the survivors, whether they're children, spouses, parents? Um, my first question is, why do you think people are so shocked that their loved one took their lives, especially when that loved one appeared to have it all, like success in business or other family, good looks, intelligence, etc.? I think there's a lot of reasons. The first one is that if the person is a loved one, then you feel connected to that person. L love is a connected thing. Um, so when the person chose to take their life, it seems as if it's almost like a betrayal of that love or of that connection. Now, that's not how the person was probably thinking, but that's, that's how it leaves the people that are left behind, um, who often think about, you know, what could they have done differently? How could they have shown their love differently? Um, sometimes, honestly, it's not reasonably possible that they could have because the person wasn't thinking clearly. Um, and that's one aspect of just how harmful it is. Um, there are some stats on that uh, children of people who have committed suicide are, depends on the study, anywhere from 300 to 800 times more likely to commit suicide than someone who, who has parents that haven't committed suicide. That's a tremendous increase. There's almost nothing in medicine that's so dramatic as that. No. Uh, wow. If your mother has committed suicide, it's worse. Probably reflecting that usually children's connection to their mother is more than their connection to their father, um, probably because of the biologic connection. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, in a, in a really scary way. And I wish that stat was more available to people who, you know, are, are suicidal in just in the small possibility that it could sway them to not move forward. 
you know, that understanding the harm that would be done as compared to the false belief that somehow it's better, you know, that the children, that the wife or the husband would be better off without the weight of the suiciding person dragging them down would be very important. And those stats, those have been around for 40 or more years. Um, I still don't run into them very often, um, but it's true. Yeah. true. And every new study, and this is true sort of about all the new studies and all the new stats, they kind of just verify the old stats. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, unfortunately, there's kind of nothing new. There's just better publicity about the things that we already know. Well, and what, we, what we're hoping is that things are changing, you know, and that more awareness is happening and we're helping reduce the stigma about talking about suicide just by the nature of us having a public podcast about it. Um, and I want to talk about that, but before we get there, I actually would love any thoughts or suggestions or advice for people who are surviving um, a loved one or a friend's suicide. Yeah, um, it, those people should get counseling themselves. Um, sometimes counseling in a group of other people who have had the experience is particularly helpful. Because, um, again, actually in all things, um, suffering is increased by a sense of aloneness. And recognizing how not alone one is with such a thing helps. Um, the ideas about um, personal responsibility, again, that I could have done something different um, or uh, done more of something or less of something, and that that would have made a difference, those are important to come to uh, grasp because it's probably not true. Um, but it's worthwhile wrestling and it's worthwhile wrestling with people that know something about suicide. Otherwise it's, you're just guessing Um, really a whole analysis of what the relationship was with that uh, deceased person, with the person that committed suicide is necessary because the, the loss takes into account Um, what has been gone, what's been taken away. And until you understand what was actually there, um, it's hard to know exactly why one might be suffering so much. Yeah, I I think that's really smart. You know, I think there's a a level of guilt and I'm just going to share a a story. Um, A friend of mine, not a close friend, but somebody I highly respected, um, kind of a mentor type, died by suicide not too long ago. And I felt guilty and I, I still feel guilty because I knew she was suffering. Like I knew she was having mental health issues. I knew she'd been in an institution for some things for a a period of time. And I wasn't very actively, you know, communicating with her. I thought about her a lot, but I just didn't reach out a lot. And when I heard about her death, I knew immediately that she took her own life. And, um, you know, and even as a not a person who's not close to somebody else, I still feel that guilt. I mean, how do you, what's your reaction? <laughs> can you be my uh, psychiatrist for a minute here? <laughs> like, yeah, I think I can. Other people, you know, probably feel this way from time to time when they hear tough news. Um, even if it's not about people they lived with or were in direct contact with on an, on an everyday basis. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's grappling with the reality of impotency. Um, in many respects, there's not much we can do, or there's not much we can do, so to speak, for everybody. Um, whatever you do for one person means you have less time for yourself, for your other commitments, etc. So your whole life is a series of compromises that you're making. And um, it's just not possible to be everything that everybody needs. Um, And it's not clear that what even a person would need, you'd know about. 
and would sell, would change their suicide. Um, there really are people that suffer from all sorts of conditions, including depression, that's not very treatable. Um, that the depression itself gets in the way of treatment. So breaking through that may not even be possible. Um, some therapists describe it as like, oh, well, they use a vulgar term, but pouring water down a well. It just never fills up um, in, in the case of some people. Other people you might do a few things, spend you know an hour, a couple of weeks with, and um, it makes all the difference in the world. So it's important to, in a sense, not be too grandiose and believe that you could do so much because in reality, we're pretty limited, we're pretty compromised and how much we can help how many people is going to automatically mean that there's gonna be others that we can't help, that we don't have the time to help. Um, and those people are gonna suffer without our help. There's people starving in Africa, so to speak, right now that uh, we can't help. Yeah, I mean, really great advice, to be honest. I appreciate that a lot. And I will just also say, like, if we just go about our days doing the right things that feel right to us and we're considerate and kind, we may actually help some people we don't even realize we're helping and we'll never know we helped just by some simple gestures, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, being kind, being compassionate um, is a helpful thing for our own selves, but for those around us too. And many times in my life, I've, I've been alive long enough now so that I've had a chance to experience this. I said or did little things that then come back later that apparently was a big deal. I told some little girl about her glasses one day and I heard about it 30 years later. It made a whole oh difference about her relationship with her glasses and, you know, which had like a double-edged sword effect on me because I also thought about times when I was cranky, et cetera, when, you know, probably I had the opposite effect on some stranger or whatever. So being kind is a good, uh, a good orientation point. Yeah. Um, as long as we understand that we're not going to be that way all, all the time. You know, we are human beings. We're going to screw up. Yeah, that's for sure. But I, I like this perspective a lot. You know, I thought maybe we could wrap today by talking, maybe focusing on like the last 10 years, say, and talking about from your perspective, if you've seen any positive changes in the world of suicide prevention and awareness of mental health issues? I have, um, particularly in awareness. Uh, there seems to be much more awareness, um, much more awareness, a little less stigmatization because some of the increased awareness in some ways has increased stigmatization. Uh, people are aware of things so now they can stigmatize better. Um, but uh, especially among young people, it seems there's much more awareness. It seems that there's more willingness to engage in treatment, that um, being in treatment is not seen as such a terrible thing. Um, I'm not convinced that treatment has really improved. Um, it may even have gone downhill in some respects because of economic and other concerns overriding that, but hopefully that will change as well. Um, certainly awareness is a big plus though. And do you think, um, say you had a patient 10 years ago who was suicidal, what would you have said to them then versus now? Is there a difference in the way you're treating patients? There's not really a difference in how I'm treating people because I've studied and treated people with this for a long, long time. So my awareness hasn't particularly increased um, over the last, oh, I don't know, 10 or 20 years or so. Um, 
I've had more experiences, so I've added to my experience base, but to my basic knowledge base, not really. Um, that's kind of disappointing. I would have hoped there would be some more breakthroughs, but there haven't been. That said, the old lessons are just that much clearer and all that much more important. Um, and I think more people know about these things. When, when I presented what I knew about suicide 40 years ago at a Grand Rounds at Albany Medical Center, um, clearly about half the people there hardly knew anything. Um, and uh, I gave out handouts about statistics and how to do a suicide risk assessment. That was a big deal at the time. Um, a lot of that stuff is known now. Uh, and I'm really glad for that. Um, but then how it moves the individual in treatment, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not sure, for instance, that treatment is more available now than it was 10 years ago. And I'm, even, I'm worried that it might be less available um, because it's expensive and there's, there's been a movement away from healthcare spending for treatments towards, for institutions and for, well, sorry to say it, but like to make CEOs richer, um, but not to fund people that are actually spending time with patients. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that it's more available, um, but maybe with increased awareness, it will be more available. It feels to me like suicide, many of us wander around this world. And when somebody close to us is diagnosed with Parkinson's or ALS or cancer, then suddenly we're aware of that. And we, we go out and advocate for change and raise money and do all that. It seems to me that suicide is very similar. And those other things are literal diseases. Like, so it's easy to go out and find organizations and raise money and do the things to help, you know, uh, make it better for people in the future. But suicide isn't or, or am I wrong? It's not necessarily classified as a disease per se. No, suicide is a behavior that would be a, a consequence um, associated with several different diseases, including the neurodegenerative diseases that you mentioned prior. Um, however, you know, because it's a behavior, so suicidal thinking, things like that, they're invisible. Even a lot of aspects of depression or other mental disorders are either invisible or the superficial layer of bad behavior looks just like that, bad behavior or rudeness or something like that. So they might even be discriminated against rather than seen as, uh, you know, if you saw a person with Parkinsonism uh, trembling or moving strangely, you'd probably be sympathetic. If a person was... Uh, giving you the finger or crying in public, it might not be so sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, a kind of a natural defense that people have against like more fully being open to understanding suicide. Um, we don't really want to so much know about such horrible things. Uh, we'd rather be a little bit more blissfully ignorant, especially yes. to consider that, um, that such could happen to us. It, it could. Terrible things can happen to any person. And uh, a lot of the time we like to bop through our lives thinking that, uh, no, we're fine. You know, we'll worry about that when we get older or something like that. Um, and certain things like mental disorders, you know, that's for other people to worry about, not for us. Um, and that, that helps usher down a curtain on uh, a more fully understanding that these are human things that any human can have and that we really all could understand. None of it is that foreign. You're right. You're right on all of it. Um, it's a bummer that it doesn't seem as if things have 
I guess progressed might not be the right word, but that's what I got <laughs> much in the past like decade. But I also do understand from our conversation, every case is so unique. There is not a handbook. So it's going to be hard to measure progress, except for the more intangible, like just greater awareness. And we're seeing out there, people are more aware and they are more compassionate in general. And, um, and I think that's a positive step. Don't you? Yeah, I do. And, you know, if we look at medical history, for instance, um, awareness usually precedes other, uh, other progress. So the first thing that happens is people become aware of a disease or a disease entity. Um, and then because they recognize it, uh, it starts to get funding, uh, treatment is dedicated towards it. Um, and at this point, it's very clear that there's increased awareness. Um, so let's hope that we're on the beginning of a, a good progress that's being made. Yes, I, I think we are. And uh, I'm going to hang on to that. Awareness precedes progress. I think that's why we're doing this project. We're yep. trying to raise awareness. So let's wrap it with one final thing. Maybe this will be a tough question. Maybe it'll be easy. What would you say is the number one thing that you think would help prevent suicide? Probably working to make our connections to people uh, more apparent so that people were less alone or perceived themselves to be less alone. Well, let's just say this. By nature of doing this podcast, we are now connecting with hopefully thousands of people and letting them know that they are less alone. So if somebody is um, listening and they believe that they want to get some help, how can they do that? There are several suicide hotlines, none of which I have the number handy, um, but literally a person could call 911 or could call their local hospital, police station, fire department, and they could say, I'm suicidal, how do I get help? And they would be referred appropriately. Okay. All those institutions um, have have that number at their disposal. I've got it in a book at my disposal. And uh, those that information has been out there for a long, long time, and it's still out there. So reaching out either for yourself or for somebody else um, is the thing to do. And um, uh, calling a hotline would be helpful, but... If you don't have that number handy, calling any of these general numbers would help. Well, we've all got phones these days, which could be part Absolutely. of the cause of the depression. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I love that advice. Go out, connect um, and uh, and make those calls. So, Doc, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate you and everything you do in your community to help people who are suffering. Thanks, Nicole. Take care. When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing his story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. And by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now.